0: Today we're going to be talking about how to find deals. The last class it was about cash flow for everyone that was here. You'll know I was trying to really focus on doing the numbers correctly because pretty much if the numbers work where you're at, any deal is quote unquote a deal, right? So uh the the big thing that you have to worry about is cash flow because if it cash flows or you can close to cash flowing you can pretty much hold on to the property forever, right? You lose your job. It doesn't matter. Somebody else is paying the rent. So that's kind of like the main that thing that I was trying to explain. But here's a quick agenda. I'm not going to go through it because agendas are boring. The long story short is there are two big types of loans and that should be the first thing that you do. Figure out how much money you can actually borrow. That can give you like a, pretty big scale of how much you can actually get, it should be one of the first things that you check because once you know how much you can borrow, then you can know which deals you can go after. The worst thing that could happen is you actually get a deal that's amazing, but then you don't have the financing or the money to pay for it, you'd end up just letting it go, which ends up being pretty disappointing. I'm going to briefly go over the types of loans. Pretty much there's like conventional loans, which is your generic 25% down or whatever. And then there's FHA loans, which are for loans that you live inside of and you can get like three and a half percent down payment and purchase the home. So you can put very little money down for it. The downside is you have an extra PMI, which is a principal mortgage insurance. That eats into your cash flow That limits your ability to actually hold on to the properties at some point. Of the FHA loans, so there are a couple of types. There's 203K, fixer uppers, uh, energy efficient. Essentially, you could pretty much get an FHA for almost any type of building or projects you want to go for. The 203K are the complete rehabs, right? You want to gut out and make a place real nice and then refinance all your cash out afterwards. That's perfect, right? You can find a huge discount on something that's very broken down. And once you repair it, you get like an ARV of, I don't know, 95%. ARV stands for uh, after repair value. And then you, if you refinance out, you can pull out all the initial capital you put in a lot more easily. On top of that, the third type is hard money. Y'all won't really care about hard money yet. Hard money is pretty important if you're a flipper, though. Hard money is real nice because then gets you fast and you use it to mostly buy properties that are broken down. This is where the biggest discounts you should come from. Property you don't need that much of a fix and flip. Usually you go conventional, FHA. Uh, those are way better in terms of loan terms. Hard money, like, uh, can go like double, so it's like six percent if you're a professional flipper. But for most people, it's going to be around like eight to ten percent for hard money loans. So that is kind of the main idea behind the different types of loans. You'll probably be looking at something that's FHA or conventional if you already have your own home, right? And you're buying your first investment. To figure out how much you can actually borrow, they're going to check a couple of things. These are the big ones. Credit score, minimum 500 because that's what you need in FHA. It's like 600 if you're trying to get an investment loan. Anything beyond 740 is a waste because all the rates are pretty much the same once you get past 740. So once you hit 740, you should be trying to extend more lines of credit, getting more credit cards, uh, and ones that you make sure you're paying off. (laughs) Uh, You should be getting the credit card specifically for those bonuses and you don't have to pay a fee every single year. Like those are the ideal types. I have like five of those. And because I have five of those, my credit history looks way better because I have all these lines of credit, right? Then you're gonna care about your debt to income ratio. Debt to income is exactly what it sounds like. They usually want you to have twice as much income as as much you're borrowing. So 0.45, I think was what I saw for the FHA. So if I make a hundred dollars, I can only borrow enough that I need to pay off $50 every single month. College students, usually you need income from the last two years, so W-2, but if you're a college student, you can use an offer letter If you're starting within the three months. Uh, Kara are you in the group? Yeah I found that out recently. (laughs) Yeah so Kara got pre-approved she got her loan and she's like I'm I got my offer letter unfortunately I I didn't know this either but there's like a three-month limit that within you start that you can actually count it towards how much you're making. However are you still buying in (laughs) Oklahoma because like I personally think it's still a good if you can find something within that price range, because like you're going to leave the city, right? So if you buy within three months, that's like harder, I guess.
1: Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I need
0: to think about it, but we'll see. We'll see. I thought about waiting and just buying there, or I might even buy in Texas because that's where I'm going. I'm that's go. true. Yeah, you could always buy in Texas. I looked at the market down there, though. Y'all actually cash flow, so you could hold on to it for a lot longer if you wanted to yeah and honestly based on like whatever new income you're making you might even be able to buy both right you your investment property first set up and then by the time you get to your new job you can just get the fha loan and then mm-hmm. uh, that way you don't have to put down as much money you can still purchase a second property you know all the other fun stuff after that now we're going to be talking about deals this is probably what most of y'all came for there's a couple ways you can go about this um first one that everyone knows about and probably what you're going to do is go through your agent. You aren't going to get the best deals that the agent has because you probably don't have a relationship with them. Not a lot of agents are good at finding off market deals, but we do have one here with us today, Will Tong. He wants to chat. He's found a couple of deals that are real good down in LA. So it's a hot market and he was able to figure that out. There's a couple of ways to get deals, but I'm just going to go over them real quick. Agents, going through old listings, specific people, there are public records, and then wholesalers. I'm going to let Will kind of take this over because this is his specialty.
1: Um, so yeah, uh, Nelson, super awesome for you to put this on. You're absolutely amazing. So I'm gonna <laughs> do, my, do my best to add as much value as you have. Um, if you don't mind, on your screen, if you wanna just search up 5020 Lathrop, 5020 L-A-T-H-R-O-P, Lathrop in Los Angeles, California. And then this is one property that we found perfect. So yeah, if you wanna just pull up the record of this one, um, it sold for 843 and a little bit of change. Um, this property, if you look through the history, we acquired it for four hundred and fifty, and we spent about $160,000 on the remodel. And then we sold it for eight hundred and forty-three. dollars um, And one reason was just primarily because we found the property off-market. The sellers were older, and they were could just explain, in a position where...
0: Could you explain off-market too, by the way, for everyone there?
1: Uh, so an off-market property is a property that's not on the market. The traditional way that people buy properties is they look at what's on the market. They look at what's on Zillow, what's on Redfin, on the different websites, because they know those things are for sale. Technically, if you think about it, every house, every apartment building, every warehouse, everything that you see that is real estate could be for sale. It's just if the seller decides to sell it to you or not. So one thing that we do to not have to compete with you know a bunch of buyers or get houses bid up or, you know, this or that is to look for properties that are not on the market, off market. And as Nelson said, there's many, many different ways to find properties that are off market. Uh, connecting with wholesalers, with um, bird dogs. Bird dogs are like um, a more specific type of wholesaler that basically um, you just continue to build relationships with. You tell them what it is that you're looking for, a specific property type. Could you, you explain wholesaling, ideally...
0: by the way, also? <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: Sorry. Thank you, Nelson. So like um, those of you that are familiar with retail or Um, e-commerce, a wholesale product is, you know, something straight from the manufacturer. Um, it's a really bulk transaction. You want to sell it as quickly as possible. You're not trying to get, you know, retail rate, which is the most expensive market rate. You're just trying to get a fair price. Um, you're going to make a little bit of money and whoever buys it, they're going to make a, their, their own, their own margin, their own profit. And whoever's selling it to you they just have a price in mind they just want to sell the property they want it to be easy they don't want open houses they they don't want agents going through the property Um, so a wholesaler what they do is they look for properties they have their own methods they'll find someone that wants to sell their property get the property in contract and basically they will resell the property by way of uh, assigning that contract which is let's say i had a property i wanted to assign it to nelson on my purchase agreement, I would say seller instead of to William, it would be seller to Nelson. I will have a sign that contract. So basically, what wholesalers do is they look for properties and then they resell them. So they don't want to list it. They're not agents. They're not trying to, you know, flip it and put it onto market. They're not trying to. Often put their own equity into the property, other than maybe a few thousand dollars down in terms of a the deposit. Their goal is to sell the property as quickly as possible for a fair price. Wholesalers they can be really really good. Um, there's a lot of people now that are, are trying like their best to be wholesalers, but they don't have the numbers right. They don't have uh, repair cost estimates right. They don't have sales prices cor- you know down correctly. They're using properties that you know aren't comparable properties to try and justify a price that they may may try to get. So experienced wholesalers, Wholesalers are actually pretty hard to find, but once you find them, make sure you build a relationship. Wholesalers are definitely a great way to get deals. It's going to be the easiest way. If you have a traditional nine to five, you don't have the time or the resources to look for off-markets yourself. Because I'm a real estate broker, I have, a, I have a team of people with me. We have the tools that a lot of wholesalers have in order to find um, off-market deals. The reason that we started looking for you know off-market properties in the first place was because we had investors that were looking for properties and we needed to figure out how to find them deals so that's one thing that we did Um but this specific property was found by way of, it's called driving for dollars. Those of you that drive around in your neighborhoods, maybe you're, you'll see a house that's really dilapidated, the paint um, sucks, the roof sucks, the grass is overgrown. There's you know, trash that's piled up, not being taken care of. The mailbox has a ton of mail stuffed in, in it. You'll see people drop off like business cards for lawn care or flyers, maybe in the screen door or newspapers. There's going to be signs of neglect, signs that a house may be vacant. So just as you're driving around or walking your neighborhood, if you see a house like that, you just basically have to figure out who owns it. One, one of the easiest ways is just to write a letter, write it addressed to that property hopefully gets forwarded to the owner. If not, you can have maybe a friend or an agent go through the title insurance, Uh, a title insurance company, they'll be able to pull title. And ideally, you'll be able to figure out who the owner is. California public records are, of course, public. So with just some searching on Google, you can actually pull up whoever owns a property and then you can mail them yourself. So
0: actually, let me uh, give a demonstration. Believe it or not, all information is public. So for example, I live in Chicago, I can uh, go and find my neighbor's house. So the uh, Evelyn Court. So I could type in this address. Actually, I probably shouldn't have done it in Google. You can look up what's called a tax assessor in your city. So I live in Chicago. So I look up Chicago tax assessor, right? So what that's going to pull up for me is the Cook County assessor. And they have this thing called search by address. I'm just going to go right into it real quick, just to show you what I'm talking about. Yeah. And then for those of you in
1: California, it's very similar. We have something called an APN, Assessor's Parcel Number. A parcel number is kind of like a social security number. It's just every piece of land has its own unique number that identifies that property in the the records the county
0: records apologize i'm working on a surface right now because my old actual computer broke and this thing is slow
1: it's okay i'll I'll fill in this space with more talking (laughs) (laughs) sure go ahead yeah yeah. And then just basically just make friends with agents or with the title insurance people, and they can generally help you pull information um, or, you know, like Nelson just did, you can pull it yourself.
0: So um, I have here my neighbor down the street. Uh, I pulled up his address and I actually have a mailing address. If you see right here, his name is Patrick. I call, you know, Pat and it literally has this information mailing address. Sometimes people who own the home are investors and they don't live there. Those are actually better people to buy properties from, right? Cause if you're in California and then you've like made a bunch of money on this property, you're like, I don't care if I sell it at like a 10 grand discount. I don't wanna deal with it anymore. If this guy can move quick, give me the cash that I need in like 30 days or in like 10 days instead of like a 30 day contract where they have to get a loan and everything, then why wouldn't I just like take it off my hands and not deal with it anymore? If you don't wanna put in the work of writing the letters yourself, That's where the wholesalers come in. So uh, yeah, that's what Will's done. He's a broker, but he's talked to a bunch of these wholesalers who go through the work and they go through all these public records. Right now, this is just property records. I put up a list if you guys want to look at them later on the PowerPoint. But essentially, if you go through um, public records, you'll find things like obituaries, which I know it sounds morbid, divorce proceedings, people who are pretty much just trying to get rid of a house at some point or don't need it anymore, where they're like behind on taxes or water main issues you can put in an offer and help alleviate them of trying to manage a house that they don't want to deal with anymore. Like uh, the house that I'm in right now, that's kind of what happened. Uh, the person who died before it was, uh, uh, who lived in it before me, they, they were old and they passed and then they gave the property to their kids who did not want to deal with tenants at all. So they were willing to put it out at a discount because they just wanted somebody to take it off their hands for them. That's sort of the best way to find your deals another way is what most of y'all are probably going to do which is look through old mls listings that's the easiest way where you don't have to actually go out mail put in you know the investment to find the properties yourself but if you go through old listings ones that are expired you can ask your agent for them they're much more likely to come down if they haven't been able to sell it for a while for example i bought a house right now in austin that was listed for 300 i got it 10 percent off at 270 and that's mostly because they put it on the market for like 90 days with really ugly photos and they didn't really take good care of the of the, the photos they just kind of put up iphone pictures and we're like yeah this is good enough And I'm kind of excited about it because it's like right across from that new Apple campus. So like that's kind of uh, that's kind of spicy for me. Um, Wow. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Appreciate it. (laughs) That is kind of like the basis for how you find these deals. You can do the work yourself, which is where you'll get bigger discounts, or you can go through wholesalers and brokers like Will. But for the work that they do, you're going to have to pay them a little fee as well.
1: Right. Nelson pretty much, he gave you guys an amazing wholesaler secret, which is to go after old MLS listings. So a lot of deals that wholesalers put out there are actually just deals they've negotiated on old MLS listings. So that is a huge gold
0: nugget right there. Another way when you're negotiating, it sounds bad, but... If it's legal in your state, you can ask whoever was a seller's agent of the property to also represent you. Um, There's this thing called dual agency, which essentially means the agent becomes the buyer and the seller's agent. In certain states, whoever is the agent that's selling it, like you only get 3% for being a seller's agent or a buyer's agent. If you are both, you get 6%. So it kind of incentivizes them the agent if you just say like, hey, I really want to buy the house, but I actually don't have an agent yet. Would you like to represent me on this as well? I don't know if I can pay this high though. How likely are you to like work with the seller? And then because it's agent, they might be able to push the seller to go down a little more uh, than normal. But again, in some states this is illegal. In other states it's like, okay. So it just depends on where you're at. So yeah, y'all can go through this list again later and you can go through the public records. Pretty much all this will be on some sort of website. If you Google it, like your city, Oklahoma city, and this, something will pop up. Now I'm going to talk about identifying neighborhoods. You're going to want to buy in class B and class C neighborhoods. Those are recession resistant. That's kind of a general rule of thumb. Do you feel safe In that neighborhood you know these are questions you should be asking when you're there you shouldn't buy something if you've never visited or if you don't trust whoever it is that you're buying it from agents will tell you anything to sell you the home it's hard to tell sometimes if somebody's like working with you or they're just trying to like pawn something off uh there's a way to detect though whether or not you're in an a b c or d neighborhood which is kind of the general lingo within real estate to figure out what class each property is in usually when recession happens people leave the class A neighborhoods, right? There's like craft coffee... People out with their kids, like those neighborhoods, people are going to try to save money from in the recession. And we've seen that happen. Most city centers, like the downtown areas, the most expensive neighborhoods, huge vacancies compared to like you come out to the suburbs or, you know, the cheaper neighborhoods where they're bigger and all that. B and C neighborhoods are really the bread and butter for a lot of people because they're pretty reliable. Whenever people leave the class A neighborhoods, or even as bad as it sounds, when you get foreclosed on, like those people are still going to need somewhere to live. In essence, like class B, class C are always going to have renters looking for somewhere to stay, which is kind of like the majority of people our age, you know? And then class D is like, you'll know when you're in a class D neighborhood, it's, you're going to be uncomfortable coming out of your car. There's a lot of risks that that neighborhood will never get better. I will give one disclaimer, which is that certain class D projects, like you will have to be there to really manage it. It's very difficult to do class D from afar. If you do class D, you... Like, for example, what we do in Chicago is, like, we are looking at some Class D stuff, but it's, like, in the path of gentrification, and it's one of those things where... It's improving the neighborhood from just being straight up war zones because everyone knows about the South side in Chicago, right? There's like straight up war zones. 10 years ago, they were war zones. Now there's like craft coffee houses and everything down the street. There's a way to like uh, make the neighborhood better, um, improve, you know, incomes and sort of like do good for that community while also being an investor. So that's sort of the warning I get for class D. If you don't know what you're doing yet, I would stick to like class B, class C, right? And then- Almost, you buy Class A if you if you really want to do it, but it's going to be an emotional buy. It's going to be where the best na- like school neighborhoods are. It's going to be areas where you're doing it more more because you don't want to lose money, not because you want to make right. So that's kind of what you're encountering when you buy. But you know that's kind of a choice that you have to make. Finding the right city is also important. Uh, once you know your city, you can like, narrow down the neighborhood, but this will depend on what you're looking for. California and New York, everyone knows, is already hard to buy in. If you really need more evidence, uh, this is the most evident graph that I can give you. This is called the Case-Shiller Index. Case-Shiller is this 30, 40-year-old company uh, that they put out an index every single year uh, or every quarter that tells you what the general home price is going to be. As the index goes up, home prices went up. As the index go down, they go down. If you look here, this is the San Francisco market. Essentially, I know a lot of you are out there in the Bay. You're going to want to look at this index because you've more or less missed out on the boat for appreciation, which means if you don't even cash flow, you're kind of buying for no particular reason. If you look at the 2008-2009 recession, prices dropped from 200 to 120, right? That's like a 40% drop. It climbed back up pretty quickly up until 2018, 2017 or so. So that means for the last two or three years, average home prices have actually stayed flat, more or less. They're not really appreciating that much anymore. Even if you do buy in and try to like invest in San Francisco, you run the risk of essentially one not making cash flow to break even and two on top of that your home not really going up as much as it did in the past. Whereas if you look at cities like Austin for example, at least like if you don't get the cash flow from Austin, it's like a straight line. In fact, in the recession, Austin actually didn't drop in price uh, for the average home values. It stayed kind of flat. Denver is another city where that happened. Prices kind of just evened out for 0809. It was like three years where nothing changed, and then it just shot right back up when the you know when the recession ended. There are certain cities where the housing market doesn't really get affected by large economic downturns because there's so much job income and like people trying to move there the macroeconomics kind of benefited. Whereas if you look at cities now in California and New York, there's more people leaving than going towards there. And maybe the trend will reverse. But even before the coronavirus, like 2017, the housing prices haven't really moved the way they used to in the past. Last thing is, I'm going to talk about renting by the room before I start answering some questions. Uh, When you rent by the room, that's another way to get a bit more income. There are ways to invest in California. There is another member. His name is Ryan Shaw. He was the one who mentioned Um, a lot of these strategies, one of which is renting by individual rooms. And he he cash flows in California. The downside is he invests in Stockton like three hours away from San Francisco in order for the the math to make sense. But essentially you can do this in college towns and neighborhoods with a lot of young people, or if there's like a major employer in the area that's bringing in new blood every single year because they need a place to live, but they might not have enough friends or people that they know, and no one's gonna buy a one or two bed to live in by themselves. So the way to calculate how much more rent you can make is usually you make 20% more if you rent it out by the room. Each room is gonna cost, uh, you're gonna make enough rent to calculate for an average two bed in that eight neighborhood, a comparable two bed. That income, you're gonna divide that by two and then multiply it by 1.2. So what that means is you're basically earning 20% more than a two bedroom split in half. And this is by the room, by the way. So you're not renting out to like a group of college students who know each other. You're renting it out to individual young professionals or like college students who don't really have the friend group to like, or people they trust to live with. And as a result, you can increase rents by 20% more. That's, that's the calculation. We went over this the other day with Quentin. Yeah, that's kind of it. Uh, let's start taking questions now. Let's see. okay, from the top, What are the chances of a burr of a wholesale deal? Are there enough margins for people to do so? So one thing I will say is burr is a strategy that worked in the past but is so popular now that it's very difficult for it to make sense. Namely because once you do burr out, you're left with very little equity and it doesn't really make sense if you want to actually hold on to the property now because prices are so high versus the income that it generates. I think you can still burr out of state, not necessarily in California, because remember, when you do burr out, you still are now paying the mortgage for the money you pulled out. The way to calculate this, um, I heard this from David Green, essentially, is your return on equity is the most important value that you use to determine, do I hold onto this property as a rental or do I sell it as a flip? Because that's essentially the difference between the burr and and a flip, whether you hold onto it afterwards or you just sell it real quickly. And that is entirely determined by the equity in the property. So say you had a 20% down payment, but now you're only earning like $3 a month in cash flow, right? That's a lot if you're in California, but like it might be more reasonable if you're in, you know, Saskatchewan, Canada or something. Now, how do you estimate the repairs on a potential flip? Uh, Yeah, so this I should have talked about a little more. I was going to add that in the tips and tricks for week four, but I can go over it real quick. Um, There are... A handful of major things I talked about last week that uh, people might have not caught onto, but we're gonna talk about rehab estimates. Rehab estimates. For a rehab estimate, it's gonna be about 10 grand for cosmetic internal changes per unit. That's my experience here out in uh, uh, in Chicago. That's kind of like a conservative estimate as well. So for 10 grand, all I'm doing is adding paint, probably improving the floors. Uh, So if I'm doing like vinyl flooring or something, uh, and then maybe like just small changes to the property. If you want small... Fixes. It's it's. This is like when people say putting lipstick on a pig. This is lipstick on a pig. You know, you add like some new appliances, you make it pretty. If you want to do a complete interior flip, you can go up to fifty thousand. You go up to fifty thousand. That means you're literally tearing out maybe a bathtub and like you're getting um, new countertops. You're putting in some like fancy uh, can lights. Like um, that's that's like a fifty thousand. Like is usually very conservative. And then if you're doing a full gut which means you're literally tearing down the walls, replacing the HVAC, replacing like um, piping, the plumbing, electrical, that, is like 100,000 per unit. So, oh, and also to clarify, this is in Chicago for like, for like up to like 1,500 square feet. It makes sense. Anything more than 1,500 square feet, then it's going to go up even more than that. But usually when we look for rentals out here, you don't want to do more than three bedrooms because there's very few people who want to rent like a five-bedroom room, it's like the market's a lot smaller for finding who you can actually rent to. The majority of people, especially young ones, are looking for like one to two beds, right? It's something you split with a friend. And then families will want a three-bed. But once you get past four, it's like large families. And most of the time, larger families like are going to be a lot more wear and tear. And there's fewer of them than like like young rich people that are trying to, at least in the neighborhoods that we're buying in Chicago. So, so that is an estimate for y'all to consider. Um, And so within this, here's gonna be some things you wanna watch out for that are gonna be the most priciest things. One, roof. Most roof uh, like that you're gonna look at are gonna be 15 to 30 years old, or uh, 15 to 30 years lifespan, my bad. A roof is gonna cost you anywhere from probably 10 to 20 grand, depending on the square footage like 1,100 square foot home is gonna cost you about 10 grand for that. Uh, A 2,000 square foot home, it's gonna be 20,000. You know, that's, it's like, that's how you budget it. 1,000 square foot home. So roof is a big capital expenditure and that'll eat into your uh, your cash um, as a result. Another thing you're going to watch out for is HVAC. So HVAC stands for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. If you're a mechanical engineer, you already know I was talking about. It's the one industry all of us hate going into. Um, but HVAC will usually last you like around a decade to like 15 years, depending on like what you buy. 15 years is usually on the higher end. But this is any furnaces. This is any radiators. Your air conditioning units, like these things uh, are going to be pretty pricey, like a uh, this will run you anywhere between seven thousand to ten thousand in the average market. By the way, again, this is the Midwest. If you go in California, you're gonna have to increase it because of uh, labor costs. Um, you might even it might even be like I don't know. I don't know if it's double. Uh, can anyone in California or New York confirm the costs of that? Which one again? Uh, roof for HVAC, uh, what do you guys usually estimate for like a 1200 square foot house?
1: Maybe seven, eight grand for the roof. And then the HVAC probably three to four, three to four.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, when I say HVAC though, it's like your heating and your AC. So if it's just one of them, uh, how much is it then? Uh, no, it's just one of them. <laughs> just, okay. So I'm combining both of them right now. So that's why like, uh, if you're tearing out a whole new, like, uh, uh heater yeah actually it's probably okay, hvac component so
1: it, it really i mean like um it gets it gets uh like in california what we have for example is more often you're gonna have like a heater so you're gonna have duct work for the heater but you may not have an ac so it's gonna be cheaper just to plug in the compressor to the duct work for the heat um as opposed to completely having to uh, put in duct work for heat and for ac so yeah
0: yeah okay so we're, we, you weren't counting duct work in that right right so it, it's gonna oh, be um okay
1: it's going to be a case by case basis. Yeah. Um, but, but most more often than not, we're going to have existing ductwork for heat. We just have to buy a compressor, stick it next to the house and got it. And plug it in there.
0: Not in California, uh, not in Chicago, Chicago, you got a lot of old homes. You actually have to put in the ductwork yourself for some of this heating. So in case you're wondering oh, what that man. means, you got like giant metal <laughs> tubes that run through your house that pump the hot and cold air. It doesn't just come out of one machine that costs a lot of money. And that's why it can go up to seven to 10 grand. If you're, outfitting with a whole new system so again this will be dependent on every single market but i guess in like california they built the homes before like 1900 so they knew to put in ducks you know so um, um yeah
1: so for for california one thing i can confirm i did put in a new ac
0: yeah
1: two months ago eight thousand down, just ac
0: just ac okay so AC. i <laughs> i'm just gonna All right, I'm just going to put seven grand to ten grand. (laughs) (laughs) one one thing is that the the
1: rates that we have are going to be much cheaper than retail rates. So most consumers will be paying retail rates. But if you're going to be rehabbing a property for investment or for flipping, Mm -hmm. you want to try to avoid paying retail rates.
0: Yeah, that's a trick to getting cheaper rates. You talk directly to the contractor. Don't just like uh, call the first thing off of Yelp and then, uh, you know, like you're going to want those investor rates, you know, so, uh, okay, Chicago, okay, watch out for roof, HVAC components, what else is there, oh, windows is a big thing also to double check, Um, out here in Chicago, uh, everyone wants double pane, because you want to trap in the heat in the winter, so double pane can anywhere from 600 to 1,000 per door, especially since a lot of, like, uh, Chicago, you're really trying to pack it and insulate it to make sure that once you take out those old frames, it has to fit with the custom frame because these houses are brick. So they need to fit not only that pre existing frame, they need to be now double paned and like insulated so that air can never leave in the winter. So that's why if you, uh, not door, window. So like if you end up, you know, doing a rehab on the whole thing and all the windows are busted. I have like in my unit alone, there's eight windows. Eight windows is like, you know, if I, on the cheap side, it's five grand and that's for one unit. My, like the home I'm in is four units. So like you can see how like those are surprises that you really want to watch out for. Everything else is small fixes. Paints, if it's ugly, if it smells bad, even like a wall, like, like the walls, like uh, has a bunch of holes in it. That's actually pretty cheap to fix. So like 10 grand will cover the majority of things that the average person would look at and be like, oh, it smells like dog. No, like that. Those aren't really big issues that you'd have to worry about. It's the the ones mm-hmm. that are going to really break your bank or roof, HVAC, windows and then foundation. So foundation is probably the most expensive, but. Usually the nice thing about foundation is that if you're going through an agent, they have to disclose that there's an issue with the foundation. So foundation can run you like pff, minimum 10 grand. This stuff can go like because you're literally, you know, packing it into the bottom just to like uh, just to like make sure your house doesn't fall apart. I know some people who spent like 50 grand just to make sure because they bought a home that was right on the edge of some water. So like, as a result, they're like, oh, we have a great lake property, but like the, the ground started eroding. So now they have to like put in a bunch of levees and also raise the home. So it doesn't just, you know, go away with the next flood foundation is a thing to watch out for. for. For
1: anyone that's like a newer investor, I would generally recommend trying to have your own agent instead of going dual agency because the buyer's agent, if they're good, they should protect you throughout. So we actually had a case where we were trying to help a buyer buy a property and then in researching the foundation, as as Nelson brings up, it turns out that it was something called a River Rock Foundation, which when we first learned about it, we didn't think there was an issue. The listening agent said, oh, you know, there's no problem. Um, you know, it's, it's a typical foundation. Don't even worry about it. And after bringing a foundation specialist, we found out that River Rock Foundations are actually the most unstable type of foundation. And there was already going to be about $13,000 worth of work that needed to be done because of cracks that were already starting to form. So if the buyer had bought directly the listing agent, they may have wound up with a $13,000 headache, as opposed to us finding it out, and then the buyer not even buying the property. So that is one thing to keep in mind, is that the listing agent signs a contract with the seller to represent the seller and sell the property. Whereas if you're newer, you may want someone totally on your side. But at the same time, some agents may not be that smart or that thorough with their due diligence. So you just want to make sure that you find a really good agent to protect you. And yeah. sometimes the seller's agent will protect you. Um, just remember contractually, they sign with the seller first.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, buyer and seller will uh, will end up costing, uh, Or sorry, the buyer's and seller's agent will take about a 6% fee um, from the seller when they sell the home, right? You, if the seller sells a home for $100, they're actually making $94. So sometimes you can just go straight to them and be like, yo, I'm not an agent. If you sell with an agent, you're going to lose that 6%. Sell it to me for like 95. At least that way you keep the extra dollar. You know, you still get a discount. I get a discount. Everyone's happy, right? So that's one of the perks of buying off market when you can. Uh, but on or, average or you find a
1: seller that wants to sell for 80
0: <laughs> yeah or for 80 because on average if you look up the statistics people who don't sell who don't go through an agent when they're selling their home on average lose about 13 percent of their equity you, know, you can find some pretty significant discounts if you just mail people say you have something okay who's a buying agent okay yeah how do you process it without an agent um if you're going through your first time and you don't want to find out and how to do the work of like filling out the contract on your own, that's kind of one of the benefits of having an agent. What you wanna do though, is you're telling the agent who's like a buyer's agent, hey, I'm gonna give you only 1% to pretty much fill out paperwork for me, right? I'm gonna cover all the other parts of it, going to buy homes myself, going to do yada yada myself, Like, I just need you to file the fee, file like the papers for me. I'll give you like five grand for it, right? So that way you can save yourself the money and you can pay somebody else to keep track of the stuff for you, which is essentially like what the agent's supposed to do. They're supposed to help walk you through the process of buying the home. Just now, like it's changed a little in recent years where if you wanna go buy your own home, you don't necessarily need the agent right now to like tell you what home prices are although they probably will have better knowledge of the neighborhoods than you do, you would just be using them specifically for the purpose of, hey, make sure I'm not making any mistakes as I'm trying to purchase a title from this person and do due diligence, right? That's the risk you take. Otherwise, first home, try to go through an agent if you don't want any risk at all through that. (laughs) For everyone curious to, someone put in an article, uh, 77 shot fatally in July 4th in Chicago. That's actually a pretty small weekend, actually, 77, please. Chicago is the third biggest city in the country, so, like, 77 is actually not that big in comparison when you think about, like, the, I don't know, like, was it 8 million people who live here, so... It sounds bad, but like there's a lot of discounts to be had when you buy down there. Yeah, it's uh, different than when you buy in California and there's 12 different offers on the same home. So that's kind of the main reason people buy in the Midwest. Um, You got to understand is like you have a lot less competition. Uh, The more people you have in a market space, right, supply demand, the more you're going to have other competing offers that drive up the price to a point that doesn't make sense. Like uh, if you at least buy in the South side, you might be able to buy something literally 20% off and then get the bank to appraise it and then literally pull the money out without doing any of the work because the person selling it sold at such a low price. So there's actually a lot of wholesalers who make money out here in Chicago. Like uh, the market here for wholesalers is pretty strong. But if you're in like uh, Austin, for example, I could not find any wholesalers that could actually give me a good discount in Austin. They were pretty much like, oh, it's a whole $5,000 off a listing price of $500,000, one off. Wow. It's just that, you know, now we go through a different process and you have to pay in all cash. And it's like, no, I don't want to, you know, that's not worth it for me to, to do that at that point. Yeah, I will throw the PowerPoint after the meeting. Any issues getting a conventional 5% down loan on a wholesale property? So when you get a wholesale property, most of the time they're going to want it in cash, cash or hard money. If you do hard money, it's an 8% like loan and you'll have to pay that for like the first one year or like six months, depending on how long it takes you to like flip it. But then once you do that, um, six months is the minimum requirement. You can then get like a normal loan refinance out of the horrible six to 10% loan and get a standard 3% one. That's what most people do when they're burring actually. They might not have the capital to buy the thing in cash. So they get a hard money loan and then they refinance out the hard money loan once they are finished like um, stabilizing it. Um, I think you should find a buyer's agent. Yeah, 3% down payment is not just for the first home. It's for a primary home of any sort. So you can keep doing FHA after you're done uh, on other properties as well. Uh, Construction loans. Okay, so when renting by the room, how do you check if it is legal and how many tenants do you have in the property? So you should check just your local ordinance laws. For example, I was looking up in Austin. Austin legally um, limits you to six people within within one home that are not related to each other. So that means if I want to rent out by the room, anything beyond six rooms like is kind of useless to me because you're legally not allowed to do that. That's something you just have to Google. Just type in your city and then local like ordinance on like a co-living. That's the terminology for renting by the room, by the way, co-living. For rents, you can definitely get a loan for uh, the construction as well. Um, That's the FHA 203k loans. Uh, It includes the price of the property that you're buying and all the rehab costs. It's actually one of the best ways to get started if you're trying to be like a flipper or burr, because um, you, when you get the three k loan, you actually need uh, somebody who's like a consultant. Like the, the loan company, and like the, the FHA requirements is that you have somebody who's like a federally mandated overseer that literally watches you do the project and like tells you like, you can do this, you can do that. And like every step of the way, in order to get approved, you know, like all the loan out. If you want to do flips, like uh, that's one of the safest ways. House hacking, you get all these tax benefits, you get all these like, you get like a break into landlording. And it's very difficult to like lose money if you think about because you get lower interest rates. And it's, there's a lot of perks to house hacking. So I'm trying to say huge down payment. You can get a second loan instead of the huge down payments. Yeah, that's definitely true. The other way to do it is uh, by getting more money through wholesaling. So uh, sometimes wholesalers are people who just are so good at finding deals, but they run out of money to purchase the deals that they just start selling them off to other people who want to buy them. Right now, the hardest part is actually finding deals in this market. Every, every transaction, every deal it's commonly said is that you either bring um, the deal, you either bring the capital or you bring the experience. Um, I'm assuming a lot of people don't have capital or experience in here. So if you want to, you can actually become the person who starts like calling, listing and like finding the deals. And then people will like flock to you if you're like, hey, I found a good deal, but I don't have enough money for it. That's a way to make money and build equity pretty quickly. Because again, you're not actually buying these homes you're buying the contract, you're, you're putting it under contract, and then you sell the contract. So, you, you at any point, you actually don't have to put that much money down to like own the home.
1: Uh, I was just gonna say this one uh, this one couple, um, they do wholesaling a lot. They actually. Resold um, the a contract for $201,000 on top. Their wholesale fee was $201,000.
0: Mm, damn, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's uh, pretty impressive. Okay, yeah, so Hung, if the burr isn't a good strategy, um, how do you go growing a portfolio if you're starting at zero? House hack, that's usually the first way. You only need 3.5% down, and it's a good way to like pretty much stop paying rent to somebody else and pay rent to yourself, right? That's what a mortgage is. Like uh, it, it's like paying rent to yourself and then having maybe three or four other people with you pay that mortgage for you. So that's kind of like the the big thing you want to care about. Um, if Burr isn't a good strategy, you can still do flips. Um, you can still go like uh, you can still try to make the money. It's just not as great as it used to be to the point where you might as well just flip instead of hold because Rent versus income that you generate is very difficult in a lot of markets right now. Again, this is different if you're in like the Midwest or places where you can actually still cash flow very easily. And then another
1: way to like, if you're in California, to so like super house hack is basically if you take your garage that's detached and then you convert it <laughs> yeah. into a guest house, like an ADU, yeah. then you yeah. get income that way. And then California also allows you to build a 500 square foot junior ADU. So you could actually take a single family house and then basically make it a triplex.
0: Yeah, that's very possible. Unfortunately, the capital expenditure for that is also very high. So that's that's the risk that you end up taking. Oh yeah, somebody asked if you can use FHA loan for out of state. No, you have to live in the home, but you can live in one and then rent out the other units. That's what some people do. You need to live in it for a minimum of one year to have it be a primary. Okay, if you don't have a primary resident purchase yet, is it possible buy a home out of state as a non-primary home? Yes, you can, that's just conventional loans. Um, what type of loan would you be eligible for? Those are just the generic, like you put down 20, 25% in order to own it. And, uh, it would be considered investment property. You don't get all the tax benefits of, uh, when you have an investment property, which is the downside, you have to be in the one living in it in order to get like the interest mortgage write-off and like, like, uh, the state tax write-off. Like there's a lot of tax benefits that come to being a homeowner who lives in their own home. I mean, if you run it like a like a corporation though, you, you start being able to write off taxes for certain things that you wouldn't as a homeowner because you're running it as a business now. So that, there's a difference, I guess, uh, now I think about it. Um, but yeah, I'm assuming yes, but would you need 25% down payment? So it's be an investment property and you have another half percent more than if it was a primary. Like right now, the Austin awesome property I'm buying, it's gonna be investment property. I got a 28% if it was gonna be my primary, but I'm paying 3.3% instead because I'm going to Airbnb it out as a corporate rental, um, just to like trial it out. And since it's like right across from the Apple campus, like in the year when it opens, it's going to be, you know, yeah, for everyone who didn't know, I actually used to work at Apple for a little while, and I saw the rent prices in Cupertino. And that stuff is if it gets anywhere close to Cupertino prices, I'm just money, you know, okay. The loan will also look at the leases and tenants already on there. Yeah. So Um, If Kara, if you hear me still, she's looking for a home in Oklahoma, but she's moving to Dallas. So technically, if she bought the investment property today, in two years, that income will count towards owning the home, uh, count towards her income. So essentially, she starts back at like zero debt, according to the DTI ratio, if I I think that's how that works, right? Because like uh y- your income totally covers the debt now for that new property uh for for that current property that you bought in Oklahoma but then if you buy a new one in like two years that like income gets written off because or the debt gets written off because of the income you generate the downside is you have to wait two years if you do that you know okay is it better to buy vacant maybe it depends on where you're going um, buying vacant right now is better if because you're more likely to be able to select your own tenants. Right now, if you buy a home that already has tenants that might not be paying rent, you can't evict them. And it's gonna be harder to work with them, especially if you're the new landlord that comes in. You're gonna end up dealing with people who might not understand your situation that you have a mortgage you have to pay. And as a result right now, vacant homes are nicer because you get to select which tenants come in that, Are probably vetted better than the last guy who owned the home you know probably vetted them so the loans look at the leases okay okay what are loan options are available if you want to retire and not bring my salary income to my underwriting would cash flows from property work what types of loans and lenders do this okay yeah so i talked about this earlier but there's also specific loans that are like no income check loans uh you just pay a much higher rate for them Um, if you're not trying to bring your salary, your income at all, you should actually go into like commercial real estate. When it comes to commercial real estate, you're gonna need a lot more money for that. But like when it comes to commercial real estate, they actually stop looking at your personal uh, income as much. They actually don't care how much you you make individually. If you're buying like, you know, a 30 unit apartment complex, like we're trying to do, the only thing they care about is your track record. And if the property itself can make money, because most of these loans, they're not recourse, so they don't make you even write a personal guarantee for the loan. Like the 36 unit that we're trying to buy right now, it is literally like, hey, does this property make money on its own so that if you fail, the bank will just take the property back? And it's like they didn't really lose that much money on their own, right? So that's a way to get around it if you want to get a loan. That doesn't bring your salary slash income into um, into buying a property. So the other option is, you know, no income uh, check loans. And those are just going to be really pricey for <laughs> for single family home. Okay, so confirm. Did you say you can take a deduction for property tax for house hacking, but not for your investment property? Yes, you can take a deduction for property taxes if you are house hacking, but not if you are buying it as an investment property. That is correct. Um, what would you need to incorporate as for tax write-offs? Would a sole uh, LLC work? Or do you need to form as an S-corp? A sole LLC would be fine. That's, I mean, th- that, the sole LLC makes more sense. Actually, now I think about it. If you have a sole person LLC, it becomes, uh, disinherited, uh, because you're just one person. I think you need to have a partner on it to actually count as like a corporation, right? So if it's a disinterested LLC where you're just one person, I don't think you're allowed to take the tax write-offs. Um, you, I think you need a partner, but somebody who's like whatever percentage. I'm not a lawyer. I would not confirm that. I would talk to a CPA or lawyer first uh, um, just to double check. I just know for that, the apartment complex stuff that we're working on, um, we can write off a lot more stuff on taxes. Like when I travel down to Texas, for example, to buy things, when I... Um, eat meals. Like I'm writing a lot of stuff on, on taxes that I frankly would never do in the past. And that's because my LLC is being taxed. I'm not being taxed, right? So I pay corporate rate on that instead of paying my S corporate, which is gonna, uh, which, you know, like I could do it that way, but I start taking on more personal liability um, and LLC versus that's like a whole nother conversation to have. For now, if you're buying your first investment property, you probably don't have enough capital that it wouldn't make sense to make an LLC to protect it for. Um, When you get sued, like like you protect yourself because you have like 200,000 in equity in a home that you don't want to just disappear uh, as a rental, right? Um, I don't think that's like the scenario for a lot of people when they're trying to buy their first home. So 200,000 is actually not that high now. Think about it like a million, you, you, (laughs) you know, like if you have a million in equity that you're at risk of, maybe you'll want to file an LLC that way. um, It's like you have a couple LLCs. So it's not that you can't be sued. You still lose that money within the LLC. It just that now you have multiple LLCs that, you know, you lose the money on one property, but now you have like four other LLCs that are not touchable and you just, you know, let that one LLC collapse on its own. But yeah, but even if you're a homeowner, you can also still take some tax deduction write-offs, like for repairs and all that. That's still included. It's just that specific other stuff, like um, admin and like uh, travel. Like uh, there's not really sections for that to have you write off. And you also, I don't think you can write off capex expenses. You can open up a holding uh, LLC. We do that, but it costs about like a thousand dollars a year when you're doing filing fees and like taxes. So. If you're making more than a thousand dollars, like way more than a thousand dollars a year on that property, then sure you can justify it. But if you're cash flowing like, I don't know, like three, four hundred a month, like a thousand dollars is going to be a third of your total total cash flow profit for the year. So I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, it's up to you if you want to do it. Uh, Property taxes are proportionally deductible once you pay any part of your home or use for home office. Yeah, so uh, somebody else nailed it for me. But yeah, you can write it off on your state taxes, I believe. And the cap is like $10,000 uh, that you can write off from property taxes. All right, that's it for the session. Um, ah, we stuck with an hour. Perfect. I don't want to cram everyone for too much longer. Uh, if anyone's any the questions, uh, we're, I think we're good for now. I will post this... Um, video link up later, uh, for everyone who missed it. And I will throw the PowerPoint on there, uh, on the website that I made. So that way we can, uh, just keep going off the same site. So I don't have to repost it every single time for people. Cool. Any other questions? Otherwise that's it for tonight.
1: Yeah. Just, uh, if anyone wants more information on finding deals, uh, we can have another follow-up session. There's just so many different ways of, of finding deals. There's pre-foreclosures, there's probate, mm-hmm. there's auctions, there's trust sales, there's tax liens, there's just so many ways of finding deals. And yeah, like great, great stuff, Nelson. Like your tips, super awesome.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Uh, have a good uh, rest of your evening. So.